0: Christians believe, of course, that Jesus is Lord. We often call this teaching or this doctrine uh, the deity of Christ. That's kind of how it's often framed. Uh, and it is one of the central tenets of the Christian faith. In fact, our statement of faith here at Rosedale Bible Church, uh, it, it affirms that Jesus Christ is, as we kind of say it in our statement of faith, true God, which is our way of saying Jesus is Lord. He is true God. If I challenged you to sift through all the doctrines of the Bible and keep only those things that a person has to believe to be saved, well, this teaching on the the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, I think it would remain. I think you believe that and you know that to be true. It is a central tenet of the Christian faith. Therefore, the study that last week's and and this week's study on uh, the deity of Christ and these passages specifically are, are very important to us. You might say, our faith rises or falls on whether or not we believe that Jesus is Lord. As the Apostles' Creed declares, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Jesus is Lord. But we don't have to look to early church creeds to uh, argue the significance of believing in the deity of Christ. I've already actually said it this morning, Romans ten nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raises, raised Him from the dead, well, you, be, you will be saved. You have to confess that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, in order for you to be saved. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul writes, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Why is that true? Well, because to confess Jesus is Lord and to believe it in your heart is necessary for salvation. A person couldn't believe in their heart that Jesus is accursed and be saved. It wouldn't make any sense. You have to confess that Jesus is Lord, believe it in your heart, thus you have the Holy Spirit. You are therefore saved. Now, outside of the Bible, one of the most compelling arguments for the deity of Christ is the fact that religious Jews confessed Him as Lord. You know, the first, ten, the first of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The Jews were commanded, you should have no other gods before you. Moses continues in Exodus 20, uh, 34, 14. Moses says, you shall worship no other god." for the Lord, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The message was clear. God is a jealous God. Only He is worthy of glory and honor. Yet, it's in this religious context that Jews like John, Peter, Paul, they expressed devotion to Jesus, They and the early church gathered to worship and sing hymns to Jesus, as we've already done this morning. They offered prayers to God in the name of Jesus. They revered Jesus in a way that their religion insisted was reserved for the Lord God only. I believe that's a compelling argument for the deity of Christ. As compelling as that argument is, we know that many of those religious Jews did not see Jesus that way. Which is why, as we saw last week, uh, it would ultimately lead them to the cross, and they, they sought to kill Jesus. Now if I told you earlier this week that this message was on the deity of Christ, if that was the subject, that that would be the subject of our message, what kind of message would you expect to hear? I'm guessing that it might be one that you might think would be very abstract, maybe uh, very theological, very conceptual in its nature. And I confess that this passage and this message will be that way at some point or some points. However, I do believe that this wonderful doctrine of the deity of Christ, that Jesus is Lord, is not merely conceptual. It's not just some abstract theological thing. I'm hoping to show you this morning that there is a concrete application uh, for this wonderful truth that Jesus is Lord. hope to show you that this morning. So with that, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read our passage, John chapter 5, verses 19 through 29. John 5, verses 19 through 29. So Jesus said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise.' Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment." because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Two things, you should know that Later on, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 7 just for a brief moment. And so if you want to, in your Bible, kind of put a bookmark there or uh, thumb that page, um, mark that page. It might help us a little bit later. Uh, We're going to look at a passage in Daniel chapter 7. I do want to also say that I believe we're having problems with the slides. Uh, And so I thought so. And so I just want to thank Leslie for all her hard work at doing that. Uh, thank you, Leslie, for all you're doing, and so uh, you're going to have to listen maybe a little bit harder this morning if you're taking notes, but I'll try to be clear as it, as it relates to our outline, and so thank you, Leslie, for, for doing that and our team back there uh, working on that. Uh, maybe they'll get it fixed, but if not, we'll, just, we'll be just fine. So, If you were here last week, you know that these words that we just read, uh, they follow a, a miraculous event. A miracle that Jesus performed. Jesus has just heal, healed a paralyzed man of 38 years. He healed him by that pool of Bezda, you remember. And this healing, of course, was performed on the Sabbath. The healing is in John chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 9. When Jesus saw him, that is this man laying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, so I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. The miracle, this miracle, would get Jesus and the man in trouble, in big trouble with the, the Jews of his day. They accused the man of breaking the Sabbath when he picked up his mat. It was illegal for you to pick up anything and move it from one domain to another domain on the Sabbath. He did that, and so he was accused of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus, of course, also was accused of breaking the Sabbath. We're not told exactly why, but presumably it was because he healed on the Sabbath, and healing on the Sabbath was a work, and so he broke the Sabbath. Now, while Sabbath breaking was a big deal in Jesus' day and it would receive capital punishment, there is something more damning than breaking the Sabbath, and that would be the sin of blasphemy, and we see that uh, in John 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that is bad enough, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If healing on the Sabbath brought a charge, these words from Jesus, the ones in John 5, 17, you remember those, my father is working until now and I am working, uh, those words would re would would uh, an even greater charge uh, for Jesus. Thus, the Jews at this point of the gospel are conspiring to kill Jesus, and we see that in verse 18. They're seeking all the more to kill him. It's the accusation that Jesus is equal with God that Jesus responds to in the rest of this chapter. And that's really what, what Jesus is responding to in these verses that we just read in 15 or 19 through 29, although it goes to the end of the chapter. It's in these verse, uh, verses that Jesus makes three claims to his equality with the Father. And these are kind of the outline of our passage, these three claims. The first claim comes in verses 19 through 20. And here we'll see that Jesus claims to be equal with God in His nature. Equal in nature. Looks like we do have a slide. Praise the Lord. Uh, Equal in nature. Verses 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. The relationship between the Son and the Father makes it impossible for Jesus to do anything of His own accord. He can't do that. It's impossible. Therefore, to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, well, is to accuse the Father of, of breaking the sabbath. You remember, the father is working and I am working. So if he's breaking the sabbath, I'm breaking the sabbath. We're both breaking the sabbath. Only Jesus only can do what he sees the father doing. Leon Morris comments, it's not simply that he does not act in independence of the father, he cannot act in independence of the father. He can only do the things that he sees the father doing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This idea of imitation. Uh, even he calls us to be imitators of God in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul can call us to be imitators of him. We can be imitators of God. Uh, however, uh, to, to uh, do what Jesus is calling here is something we could never do. We might be imitators, but Jesus is, is not a mere imitator. Jesus is of the same nature as his Father. He is speaking about a relationship that is outside of our ability. To see what the Father is doing is to be of the same nature, it's to, to share the same elemental or most basic qualities that would allow for such an activity. It's to share some and substance is to share a unique kind of communion only found between Father and Son. This means, as Barclay says, to see Jesus in action is to see God in action. We don't wonder what God thinks about mankind. We're not confused about what God thinks of sin. We're not perplexed about how God regards our human situation. Well, why not? Because we have Jesus. That's why. You remember John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So it's not a mystery to us what God is like because we've been given Jesus. And so we know what God is like because we have Jesus. Barclay again, the mind of Jesus is the mind of God. The words of Jesus are the words of God. The actions of Jesus are the actions of God. And this oneness that is found between the Father and the Son is not forced. The Son was not forced into this union. The union between God the Father and God the Son is rooted in love. That's what the passage says. Look at the first part of verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Being bound by a similar nature or a similar essence... Father and Son are also bound by love. Now, you might remember earlier in John 3, 35, we read this. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Well, in, there in that passage, it's, it's a little different in the Greek. Uh, Jesus uses a different word for love in that passage. He uses the word agape, probably familiar with agape love. You've probably heard that before. It's a love that we often say doesn't seek its own. It's the love of comprehension or full comprehension or, or purpose. Uh, again, a love that doesn't seek its own. And, and Jesus says that. The Father loves the Son. Agape loves the Son and has given all things into His hand in John 3.35. But here He uses a different word for love. He uses the word phileo. Maybe you've heard that one as well. This is uh, the love of deep feelings. This is a, the kind of love that friends have. This would be the kind of love that a father would have for his son. And so we have this agape love that the Father has for the Son, and then we also have this very kind of tangible, affectionate kind of love that the Father also has for the Son. Both are given to us in just a couple chapters. And we should add the verb tense that Jesus uses here is habitual. It it speaks to the habitual kind of love. So this is not a love that ever ends. It's a love that goes on and on forever. Of course, God is... Eternal, and so God the Father is always, always has this kind of phileo love for the Son. The Father's love never ceases. If Jesus is equal to God in his nature, well, it also stands to reason that he would be equal to God in his works. And so there's a second claim that Jesus makes Jesus is equal in works. Look at the second half of verse 20. He says, And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. As it turns out, the father aims to show the son greater works than, well, the healing of a paralyzed man. There are going to be greater works than this. And as a result, the son will demonstrate his equality with God through these greater works. Now, I, I will confess that in studying this passage and thinking through this, this passage is hard to outline. Uh, I don't know if you feel that way in just reading it. It's, it's, it feels very abstract, especially if you haven't kind of read it a bunch of times. It's hard to outline. It's hard to put into any kind of logical order. That being said, Jesus does refer to three specific works in this section. And so I believe that these specific works are the greater works that Jesus is speaking of so we'll start with the first one, the greater work of spiritual life. The greater work of spiritual life. Look at verse 21. For the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Look down at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he, also, so he has also granted the son, excuse me, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. There's no doubt that raising a person from the dead is amazing, yet I would argue it's still just a great work. For example, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John 11 is, is a high point in the Gospel of John. In fact, if you're studying the, the book and you're looking at those different signs, we've talked about these specific signs that John, that John uses throughout the book, John 11 is really kind of that, that high point of the book in terms of signs, and it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Yet, we know, Lazarus would eventually die, and thus, that is a great work. But there is a greater work, And Jesus, speaking to Martha before he raises Lazarus from the dead, speaks of that greater work in John 11, verses 25 and 26. You remember, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The greater work is to raise the spiritual dead. Is what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about in John 3 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Is what Jesus spoke of to the Samaritan woman in John 4.14. The water I will give will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. About seventeen years ago, a man attended a home Bible study. The man was spiritually dead. A man was John Doobie. I had attended church a number of times growing up, of course, here and there. I had read parts of the Bible. I thought I knew certain things about Christianity. But it wasn't until that night, sitting among a a group of Christians, I might even give a little plug, in a growth group, although it was just a home Bible study, it wasn't called a growth group, but yet it was the same thing. In that group my life was changed. As I drove home that night, I cried. Sure, I I felt guilty in the past. I knew what that felt like. But never in this way. This was different. Whatever I previously thought about Christianity, whatever ideas or opinions I had, faded away. It wasn't until that night that the truth would become very clear. Driving home, I finally knew that I was a sinner. It was that night that I was, as the book of John says, born again, raised to new life. About 17 years ago, everything changed in my life. My friends changed. My interests changed. Praise the Lord, my relationship with my wife changed. It was in that moment that I, start, I started to experience eternal life that's what the book of john is after to be born again to have a new life i believe this is what jesus is speaking of here in verse 21 for the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he wills and then verse 25 truly truly i say to to you an hour is coming and is now here the hour is here it's now that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. I trust many of you have had a similar kind of experience. However, I know that people come to Christ in different ways, and your story might not be exactly like my story. It might be somewhat different. That's fair enough. Uh, Kent Hughes illustrates that point. He, He writes, Years ago, the great G. Campbell Morgan was preaching in Tennessee. During the sermon, he stated... By no means can every Christian remember the time when he was born again. At the end of the sermon, someone challenged his statement. Morgan turned to him and asked the man, Are you alive? The man said, Why, of course I am. Morgan said, Do you remember when you were born? The man said, No. Of course I don't remember when I was born, but I know I am living. Morgan replied, Exactly. Some Christians may not remember the moment of their new birth, but they are spiritually alive and know it, and that is what counts. What counts more than knowing when you were born born again is knowing that you are born again. While there's a, a mystery in the new birth, the actual process is very simple. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And this is the resounding message of John over and over and over. It's so simple. Hear the words of Jesus and believe. I have to say, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't yet believed on him, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. I went to that home Bible study. He had no idea what would happen to me. I drove home, everything changed. And all I did was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day. In these verses, we see another greater work, of course, that demonstrates that Jesus is equal to God. And it's this. It's the greater work of judgment. The greater work of judgment. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son... Verses 26, excuse me, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then verse 27, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. It appears that Jesus has the power to grant spiritual life and he has the power to judge. And this authority was given from the Father. We shouldn't overlook the Father has given the Son not just a little bit of judgment, but it says all judgment. He has given all judgment to the Son. Therefore, His judgment includes the preliminary judgment of men today, and it includes the final judgment at the end of time. Notice that in the case of granting spiritual life, as we just discovered the father and the son are set side by side they're they're just compared to one another verse 21 for the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will it's it's almost as if they're equal in that verse both do this thing give life if we didn't know about the incarnation about the son becoming a man well we almost wouldn't find it in this verse we wouldn't know it that is in verse 21 The actions of the Father and the Son are parallel. Jesus is making a simple comparison. The Father raises the dead, and the Son raises the dead. But there's something slightly different in the act of judgment. Jesus says in verse 22 that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. He has given Him something. And so here we have a veiled reference to the incarnation. And this veiled reference is fully brought out in verse 27. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. There's a sense in which all the works of God might be equally attributed to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're of the same nature. They're of the same essence. Yet, in creation and redemption, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have distinct roles. And here we see some evidence of that in our passage In the incarnation, the Son has been given the unique role of judgment. This is, you might say, a part of His mission is to judge. Verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I'm not sure if you can feel the weight of that, but that's a weighty reality that all judgment has been given to Jesus. And Jesus' reference to the Son of Man here is very significant. It's a title that Jesus uses of himself. It's actually the most common title that Jesus uses for him, of himself. He is the Son of Man. And I believe this is a reference to Daniel 7. I told you to kind of mark in your Bible Daniel 7 if you want. We'll just go there and I'll read a couple verses. Daniel chapter 7. What is this son of man thing about? Remember that Jesus, uh, Jesus is speaking to these Jews who accuse him of blasphemy for claiming that he has equality with God, and then he uses this title of himself, son of man. Of course, they would know Daniel 7. Um, Daniel 7 verse 9, as I looked, this is kind of Daniel has a window into, into heaven and he, he looks and he sees, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. This is the Father, God the Father takes his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So you have this courtroom scene with God the Father on the throne. It's a... I don't have words for it. It's too magnificent for me to imagine. I looked, and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked... The beast was killed and its body destroyed. Now, I take this to be the nation of Rome. There's different ways to take this. That's my interpretation. So this is a a dominion, a a kingdom that was destroyed. The beast was killed and its body destroyed and was given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion, these are the other kingdoms, okay, they were taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So interesting that this title would be given to this one. Like, huh, son of man, what's that about? And he came to the ancient of days. He's presented before the Father. He was presented before him in verse 14. Look at this. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If I was one of these pious Jews back then, to hear Jesus speak like this, I'd be speechless. Who do you think you are? All judgment has been given to you, and you're the Son of Man? It's an amazing and profound statement that Jesus makes. Jesus is claiming to be this one that is presented before the Father, who has been given, who's going to be given dominion over everything to judge all things. And so, He has the authority to execute judgment. Now, Jesus is kind of offering a kind of new revelation here to these Jews. There's a deeper truth to Daniel 7. The events of Daniel 7 will come to pass. Assuredly, they will come to pass, the Scripture says. But there's something else that will happen between Daniel's day and this final day. And that is the incarnation. That is this God will become a man. God will condescend. They wouldn't have known that from just reading that passage. They needed a deeper understanding. So here Jesus is before them as a man saying, I'm the Son of Man. I have been given all judgment. God will step down into this world and offer life to all those who believe in Him. And I really mean that, all those who believe in Him. Paul writes, here there is no Greek and Jew, no circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This was the message you remember that Jesus wrote. Jesus said to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world, God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Not just you, pious Jew, but whoever believes will have eternal life. And just like the entrance of that future kingdom is guarded, we might say, as it were, by the Son of Man. Well, entrance to the spiritual kingdom is guarded, as it were, by Jesus. In in saying these kingdoms of God are guarded by Christ, I'm saying that what we believe about Him, what we believe about this Son of Man, what we believe about Jesus determines whether or not we have access to that kingdom. We have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to enter into that kingdom. The deepest and most significant significant questions about life. Where do I go when I die? What is my purpose in life? All hinge on what we believe about Jesus. There's nothing higher we can talk about. There's nothing more important than what a person believes about Jesus. And this is true because he has been given this greater work, the greater work of all judgment. There's another greater work contained in this verse, and it's found in verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, "'Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment.'" Here we have the greater work of the resurrection, the greater work of the resurrection. Jesus is speaking here about the future physical resurrection of our bodies. Jesus has the, had the power to grant spiritual life, or has the power to grant spiritual life, excuse me, was given the power of judgment, and here it's the voice of Jesus that will awaken the physically dead through resurrection. Notice, Jesus speaks of two resurrections. Those who have done good are resurrected to life, and those who have done evil are resurrected to judgment. Two resurrections. Jesus uses the the title resurrection of life to describe the bodily resurrection of the saints. The truth of the resurrection is found in numerous places in the Bible, even in the oldest book of the Bible, Job, we read about the bodily resurrection. Job 14, 14, Job answers his own question. If a man dies, shall he live again? Job responds to himself. All the days of my service I will wait till my renewal should come. Fascinating. in such an old book that you'd believe and, and give testimony to a bodily resurrection. He actually says more later on in Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. I can't take it. It's too big for me. It's too much," he says. We've already mentioned the prophet Daniel. Well, he wrote of the resurrection as well. Daniel 12:2, "And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt." The apostle Paul tells us that we'll be given new bodies. When the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. Before you and I knew Christ, or if you're an unbeliever here this morning, we were unable not to sin. That is, we were unable to please God. As the Bible says, we actually read it this morning uh, this, in our scripture reading, for without faith it is impossible to please God. Being in Christ, you and I, that is if we're Christians here, being in Christ, you and I are able not to sin. That is, we're able to please God. As the Bible commands us, put to death the deeds of the body. Why would it command us to do that if we weren't able to, in fact, put to death the deeds of the body? You and I as Christians are able not to sin. However, in the resurrection, we will be unable to sin. That is, unable to displease God. As the Bible says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him. What a wonderful truth. And Jude prays in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I think about when I think about the resurrection, I have this image of my mind of of the the lenses on my eyes just clicking, and all of a sudden all the sin is gone. Just like that. I don't see through the lens of sin anymore. The glorious, glorious truth. If Jesus in the Bible tells us of a resurrection of life, well, remember there are two resurrections. It also tells us of the resurrection of judgment, the resurrection of judgment. Here Jesus says those who do evil succumb to such a resurrection. Jesus calls this, again, resurrection of judgment because these will face final sentencing before the great white throne. Paul writes in Romans 2.8, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Those who haven't trusted in Christ will be judged by what they have done. And the Bible does suggest, I believe, that judgment will vary based on what a person has done. I believe Jesus makes this point in Luke 12, when He teaches the difference between a servant who knows his master's will and one who does not. Jesus says this, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I believe this suggests that punishment will vary according to how much knowledge a person has of God's requirements. Again, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. If you sit under the preaching of God's Word, and you, you, you know a lot about Scripture, but yet you don't bend the knee. Well, you're reaping judgment on you, yourself. Again, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. Now, the Bible does say that believers will stand before the judgment seat of God, Romans 14. We will give an account, Paul says, but this is not a judgment for punishment. This is a judgment for rewards. That's the judgment that the believer experiences. You know, well, John 5, 24, here in our passage, it says it, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And then he says, He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And we know Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As believers, we should have no fear of final judgment. As believers, every sin we've committed has been paid for in Christ. Every sin has been eternally forgiven by God. As believers, we we suffer no fear of the future. We will take no part in the resurrection of judgment, only the resurrection of life. You may have noticed... Jesus does say that the resurrection of life is for, he says, those who have done good, and the resurrection of judgment is for, he says, those who have done evil. I don't believe that Jesus is teaching us here that heaven and hell are determined by external works or deeds. I don't think that's what he says. I don't think that fits with the overall kind of context of the gospel of John. In fact, if you go back and look at John 3, 20 and 21, which we studied when we looked at this conversation with Nicodemus, John three twenty. for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, which I think is a very, very interesting thing for Jesus to say, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We don't do what is true, uh, we're we're not uh, held accountable for uh, doing good deeds, but by what is true. Whoever does what is true. In John's gospel, works come as a result of what we believe about Jesus. And the work we are judged on is whether or not we have come to the light, which is what he says there in John 3, 20, whether or not we come to the light. Of course, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but Jesus actually says this very clearly in John six twenty nine, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And so the good deed that we do is belief. That's the deed that we're measured by, whether we believe or we don't believe. Therefore, in summary, the resurrection of life or judgment, those are not determined by what we do, but why again, by what we believe. Now, you probably know uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. You're familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe you've read that one, maybe a couple others. There's five or six of them. Uh, Well, the last one, The Last Battle, if you've ever gotten your way through that one, uh, there's a little spoiler here. I hate to break it to those who haven't read their way through, but uh, Lucy, Edmund, and Peter, uh, they die. Uh, They die in the book. and uh, They actually don't die in Narnia. They die in the real world. but they're in Narnia. When they die in the real world, they're hit by a train. There's a train accident. I don't think it talks about the specifics, but Lucy, Edmund, and Peter die. And Lewis writes at the end there, uh, they discover that they're dead, and Aslan's speaking to them. And it says, he writes, and as he, as, as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that I think this is such a wonderful paragraph. The things that, uh, they were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. Excuse me, let me back up. And as he, Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. We can most truly say they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story all their life in this world and all their adventure in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Lewis is giving us a picture of the future. And it's Jesus our Lord that has the power to command the dead to awaken. Jesus has the power to call us forth and give us a new life, a life that is chapter one of a great story, and a story where every chapter is better than the one before. Notice how verse 28 begins. Do not marvel at this. Do not marvel at this. Of course, Jesus is calling the Jews to stop their unbelief. It's a funny way of saying it. We we should, we ought to marvel. But he's saying, don't marvel at this. Stop your unbelief. Stop wondering how these things can be and start believing that these things must be. This command is for us as well. If we're undecided about Christ, we must stop speculating. Furthermore, wherever we are on uh, on that spectrum, we must move closer to belief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, but I, I want to believe more. I want the doubt to run away. I don't want to fight for faith anymore. I just want to hold on to it. Wherever there is unbelief, it must end. We must see Christ for all that He is, our Lord and our God. So, Jesus claims equality with God. He he performs the greater work of granting spiritual life and the greater work of judgment, the greater work of resurrection. In all of these, Jesus claims equality with the Father. I know we're pressing forward further into time I hope you're with me still and I hope you're okay not too much longer here's one final claim in this passage up to this point I've been working my way around it without mentioning it kind of hiding it in the text a little bit saving the best for last you might say Jesus moves away from one topic only to return to the same topic. I kind of express the difficulties of, of outlining this passage. Verses 21, 25, and 26, he spoke of the resurrection. Verses 22, 24, and 27, he speaks of judgment. Interestingly, Jesus begins and ends using the same Greek word, a thumazo, for what it's worth, in verse 20. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel, thumazo, you may marvel. And then at the end, which we just saw in verse 21, 28, do not marvel at this. Do not thumazo at this, or may thumazo, he says. Well, there is a way of organizing thoughts that was common in the Hebrew mind. Today we call this structure a chiastic structure, which is just a cross. A chiastic structure is a literary device used by the writer or speaker to help the reader understand what is the central point or what's most significant here. It's a tool to help us see, you might say, as Kaiser, well, Kaiser says, the central rallying point of the text. And so, what is the central rallying point of this text? Look at verse 22, 23, where the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And we have this purpose statement in verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And there's this beautiful sentence. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is equal in nature. He's equal in work, works. And he's equal in honor. He's equal in honor. What does it mean for us to honor the Son? Well, honor was very important in Jesus' day. To give honor was to acknowledge a person's place in the scheme of things. It's to speak and behave toward them in a way that acknowledges their status and their position. For the first century, Jew, it's meant living in light of God's status as the maker and sustainer and king of all creation. The Jew gave this honor to anyone or anything else. It would detract from the honor due only to God. It's in this context that Jesus says the Father's purpose is that all may honor the Son as they honored the Father. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Jesus is linking the honor due to God with the honor due to Himself. It goes without saying, this is unprecedented in Jesus' day, in any day. Jesus is saying to the Jews, In the way that you acknowledge God's status and position through worship, you are to to acknowledge my status and position through worship. Whatever value or worth the Scriptures teach you to give to God the Father, it's right for you to give the same value or worth to me, Jesus is saying. Now, as I come to a close here, I told you in our introduction that there would be a, 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 that this would be conceptual at times, this message, but that it would end with some kind of concrete application. Well, I believe the central rallying point is that concrete application. You and I are to honor Christ. You and I are to honor Christ. And I don't believe that's abstract. You and I have no problem understanding what Paul means in Ephesians 6-2 when he says that children are to honor their parents. We know what that looks like. Actually, the role of a parent and a child provides a helpful avenue for application. There's a little phrase that Kate and I picked up from Ginger Hubbard in her book, Don't Make Me Count to Three. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's, it's just the first time I encountered it. Maybe she didn't write it, but she wrote this. She says that we are to teach our kids to obey all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Something that we've kind of used in our parenting. I confess I haven't been perfect in the use of it. Uh, but it's something I try to think about as I teach my kids. They are to do things all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Well, I don't know about you, but this seems like a good way for a child to honor their parents. If a child's doing this, they're honoring their parents. Well, and if, if Kate and I are going to call our kids... To that standard, if you are going to call your kids to that standard, it seems appropriate. We ought to be willing to call our, put ourselves under the same standard from our Lord. Let me say it this way and in practical terms. To honor Christ is to obey Him all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. That's what it means to honor Christ. Now, of course, it's not my job to determine the corners of your life where you might not be honoring Christ. It's not my job to do that. I know that in my own life, as I think about this, I know that I can be impatient at times, and I know that I can make an idol out of excellence. Those are things that I have to work on. God is calling me to be patient. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 reminds me to be patient with everything, everyone. Very simple. Scripture is very clear. Be patient with everyone. God is calling me to trust in his excellence, Second Peter one three reminds me that I have been called to His glory and excellence, not my own. But His excellence, I can trust in His, not in my own. I'm sure you can think of the ways that you might honor Christ today, and I'm pretty sure they're not conceptual. Picking up the phone, making the phone call. It's hard to seek forgiveness could be as real as telling your spouse that you sinned against him. Maybe as, as real as deciding to change the channel or turn the other cheek. All of these are ways in which we might honor Christ. Maybe it's just the communication of love. I don't know why, but sometimes in my heart, I feel, it feels hard to communicate love. And I can only account, attribute that to sin in my heart. Because it's good to love. God is love. So to tell people that I love them would be to honor Christ. Something I'm very careful of in my teaching of the Bible is the use of guilt as a motivator. I'm very careful with that. Uh, I suppose it's because I don't like to feel guilty and I don't want other people to feel guilty. I don't like that. I don't like that feeling. Uh, However, the principle is more deeply rooted than that. It's not really about what I feel think, or feel. What does God say? And so, as it turns out, I actually don't think our Lord uses guilt as a motivator, at least not principally or in the most part. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, "'For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves.'" but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's a beautiful verse because it gives us our motivation. For the love of Christ controls us. And then Paul calls us to something. For the love of Christ controlled us. He died. And so what do we do, Paul? We don't live in, we're not motivated by guilt. He says that those who live might no longer live for themselves. There's our motivation for obedience. It's the love of Christ. It's what Jesus has done for us. As I understand the Christian life, we don't honor Christ out of guilt. We honor Christ out of love. And this means the more clearly we can see and understand who our Savior is and what our Savior did, the more love will grow for Him and the more that will motivate us to obey Him and to honor Him. So, two sentences. With these claims in hand that Christ is equal with God in His nature, equal with God in His work, and equal with God in His honor. Let us do that. First Timothy 1, 17, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Steve, will you lead us?